Acts chapter 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you that when they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? It's good to see everybody. We're glad you're here. Um, so this Sunday school teacher is teaching a kid's Sunday school class, and she's a little bit full of herself, and so she likes to make sure the kids know that she's like the model of being a Christian, and so she's telling the class about how important it is for them to witness and share their faith, and she's just telling them how she is just always telling people what they, what they should believe and making sure she shares Christ, and she says, you know what? In our community, people know that I'm a Christian. Why do you think they know that I'm a Christian? 
And the class went silent like it often does when, when questions are asked of that in a kid's Sunday school class. And she kind of paused and there was this awkward moment. And then one little boy raised his hand and said, uh, maybe it's because they don't know you. <laughs> Ooh. You're out. Go see your parents. Uh, <clears throat> you know, we are talking about this section in Acts that is interesting and trying to make a very clear connection to our moment and what's happened in our story. So if you, you haven't been with us, if you're a guest or, or you haven't been with us for a while, um, we are going straight through this amazing story uh, in the book of Acts of the spread of Christianity that starts in Jerusalem with about 120 people and 30 years later it is all over the Roman Empire uh, and, and the main person in the second half of the book is this guy, the Apostle Paul, who first was a persecutor of Christians, then Christ met him on the road to Damascus. He became a follower of Jesus. But the last several chapters of Acts move from these missionary journeys where Paul's been preaching Christ to his imprisonment, really unjustly. And now the Romans actually arrested him to save his life from the Jewish uh, people in, in the city of Jerusalem who'd come to despise Paul. And Paul is, is uh, now under trial, and it's like the, the story of Acts had the emergency break pulled. We had, you know, years show up in, in just maybe half of a chapter sometimes, and the story just kept moving, kept moving. And now the last several chapters focuses on the fact that Paul makes five defense speeches in front of different people while he is actually on trial for his life. And, and the options are that the Romans can let him go or they can, uh, they can turn him over to the Jews. But the Jews have already made it clear their goal is to lynch him, to, to, to get rid of Paul, to end this plague, as they say in this text, and to off him. And so, so the story, what happens in the story is you have both the Roman, so the secular, and the religious Jewish culture have turned hostile towards Paul and towards the church and towards the message of the gospel. And what's really kind of what's going on in our culture right now is that um, in many ways it shapes, we've had this, uh, this religious reset. In fact, I actually heard those words out of a local uh, radio commentator in our, our, uh, in our context here, here in St. Louis, a local uh, radio commentator that's on KMOX said what's happening in America is called a religious reset. Just all, this, all of a sudden, the religious identity, values, ideas in our culture around us have completely changed. And in that change, one of the things that has happened is that there is a different way of seeing even us in this room, people having faith. And, and what Acts has done is it is helping us see what it looks like for us to be faithful to Jesus while we still love our culture and have as our goal to see Christ known when the culture is more hostile. My wife reminded me that I probably need to pause again and remind you that these signs up here are not a reflection of our belief system, all right? We did not put, you know, kill Christians and God is a woman because that is the message that we are trying to put out. These are things that have been seen at protests and in real places in our culture as the culture has turned hostile. And it's easy for us to respond by getting hostile too. That is not the Christian way. And it's not what Paul does. And so Paul becomes a living example of what it looks like to walk faithfully with Jesus when both the religious and irreligious, when the people around you in the world are hostile towards your faith. But this morning, it's a very interesting part of the story because Paul is in the story in the middle of 
an individual and a whole group of people and what's going on with those people as opposed to what happens with Paul is actually striking in the story. Um, I, I think one of our problems is that we actually, as Christians, have a massive credibility problem in the culture. Part of the reason that the world around us is actually turning against people who hold to the gospel, to the historic Christian faith, who who want to make Jesus known, is because of this credibility problem, of the fact that in so many places, in so many spaces, there are people who claim to be Christians, and in a lot of times, there are people who are holding a position like mine and often pastoring huge churches who what they say with their lips and the posture they take towards the world and who they really are in their lives is drastically different. We end up with scandal after scandal after scandal showing up on TV, in newspapers, on social media of pastors who are preaching against certain types of sexual sin, yet they are actually involved in sexual abuse, of, of uh, inappropriate relationships, like they themselves have fallen. We have pastors who have become very public because in their role and their leadership as a pastor, they became spiritually abusive and they used the power of their platform, the power of their position to belittle, demean, and destroy the lives of people. And then all of a sudden it shows up in the culture and there's podcasts and there's media events around it. And it ends up on the news when churches have to distance themselves, have to remove somebody from leadership. And we look at it and go, why is this happening? But the outside world is going, there, there it is. There's Christians being Christians. We, we see a culture where um, literally there are sexual abusers who are in ministry and we end up with pastors and systems and whole church structures that defend the abuser, looking at his gifts and stories of, of literally significant spiritual leaders who look at a woman who's been sexually abused by a man who's in ministry and, and phrases like this, but he has so much gifts the Lord is going to use him. You just need to forgive him. Listen, while there is forgiveness here, the fact that that man does not face justice is nonsense. And it has led to, to huge, huge front page stories. And what we want to do as followers of Jesus, we want to get mad at that without realizing that maybe, just maybe, the culture around us does have a viable argument against us. We have a credibility issue in the church that is being viewed by the world. And this story is really all about that. In fact, I think think in a large way that the um, world sees Christianity in our culture kind of like Warden Norton from Shawshank. If you've ever seen this movie, Um, Warden Samuel Norton is kind of the well, he's, he's, he's the bad guy in the movie, okay? And the movie is a movie about prison. It's a hard movie uh, that has some beautiful themes in it. But in the midst of this, what you have is this warden. But as, when we first meet the warden, this warden is a guy who is very outspoken, very, very um, public with his Christian faith and his belief in the Bible. In fact, when... Uh, Andy Dufresne, who kind of becomes the main character, is brought into the prison with a group of people the first time. We have uh, Norton giving this speech to them, and he says, listen, rule number one, no blasphemy. 
I will not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. And then he goes on later to say, I believe in two things, discipline and the Bible. Here you will receive both. Put your trust in the Lord. Your rear end belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Now, if you've seen the movie, you see that all through the movie, there are references to this guy's faith. He talks about his faith. He talks about his wife being in the choir. He quotes verses from the Bible all through. Yet, as the movie progresses, he becomes the ultimate villain as his life is nowhere near what his professed faith is. He is abusive and cruel to a fault. But then he actually gets himself involved with the main character in a money laundering scheme forcing the person to do it or doing horrible things to Andy Dufresne in the middle of it. And he is making himself rich off of the back of this man who has certain skills in his prison and then does horrible thing when this guy tries to stand up and say, I'm not going to do it. And the whole movie is this picture of, of this man who is toting the Bible, talking about the Bible, believing the Bible, preaching the Bible, telling people to put their trust in the Lord. Meanwhile, his whole posture in the whole thing is one of... Uh, just being the opposite of everything that he preaches. And listen, I, the reason I'm bringing this guy up, if you're not familiar with him, just you get the idea. The reason I'm bringing this guy up is because in a lot of spaces and a lot of places, our whole culture now looks at people who hold faith in Jesus and they believe we are all Warden Norton. Because the examples that they have had from the larger culture or in their own lives have been people who live their, their faith in this way. Sure, they believe in Jesus until that belief in Jesus will challenge them to actually do things that will be countercultural. Sure, sure, they believe in Jesus and want to tell everybody else how to live, but they have values and attitudes in their own heart that are opposite of the gospel. Sure, they, they are willing to stand for certain issues, but when it really is standing with victims and, and, and even losing power to do what is right, no way. Sure, we can preach against certain sexual, sexual ethics and meanwhile be people who like watch porn and get involved in these things just as much as everybody else. There is a credibility crisis. And what we have in this beautiful story is a moment where Paul has multiple opportunities to act like the other actors in the story. Yet he, for the glory of Christ, maintains his integrity. And that's what I want to talk to you for a few minutes from this text. I just want to talk to you about and give you a challenge this morning for those of us who authentically believe in Jesus, a challenge about the importance of us uh, portraying the glory of Christ through lives of holy integrity. That the way we live our lives before a watching world is an apologetic for our faith. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus. What I'm trying to say to, to those of you who are here and you're not sure what to do with this, or if you have friends and neighbors who they, they see all Christians as is um, Warden Norton, I would challenge it. One of the things that we need to do is we need to acknowledge that and apologize for where people have been wounded by people of faith, by Christians who claim to be one thing and, and we're totally different. Uh, we need to look at sexual abuse survivors who have been totally wronged by people uh, who were Christians and say, listen, this is not the way of Jesus. And we believe in Jesus. We love Jesus. And, and so uh, 
But for the rest of us, like as we're in here, I just want us to wrestle with, are we living lives of integrity before a watching world? Are we honoring Jesus? And so this story is a beautiful moment where Paul is confronted with actually multiple things where he could have taken the easy road, yet in the minute he, he actually honors Christ by living with integrity, and his integrity, while it maintains his witness, is costly, deeply costly to him. And this is the call for us this morning, all right? So what happens in the story, here's this beautiful story in Acts of Paul. He came to Jerusalem, and when he showed up in Jerusalem, he got, like, beaten up in the temple grounds by the Jewish, um, by, by this huge Jewish crowd who began to beat up Paul, began to just pound him, and, and their goal was to kill him, just beat him to the point of death. But Roman officials saw from this tower, looked down and saw the commotion, and they came down and they arrested Paul to protect him from the crowd. But now he's, Paul is, for the rest of the story, in between his accusers, who are Jewish, these, this religious crowd, and the Romans, whose one single goal is to keep peace, the Roman peace, which the Roman peace was not a true peace. It was a peace that was forced with power, but they don't want anything disrupting the apple cart. And Paul finds himself between these two groups of people, but in the middle of it, Paul reminds the Romans that he is actually a Roman citizen. He exercises his rights to not be just thrown back to the wolves and to not get beaten, but he now has to have due process. He has to have a trial that works its way through the proper Roman systems. And so he's in Jerusalem. Uh, they, he, he stood before the Jewish religious council called the Sanhedrin, this council of 70 Jewish leaders who function as the Supreme Court and the governing, the religiously governing authorities in Israel. And Paul made a defense. That defense ended with the, the, the group getting in an argument over a the, theological issue that Paul threw on the table, specifically his belief in the resurrection, and they like were turning on Paul, and so the Roman official got him out of there. And that night, or that afternoon, a group of 40 terrorists decided that they were going to uh, not eat or drink. They took a vow not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. They got the Sanhedrin involved in it, saying, hey, tell Tell the Roman official, this guy named uh, Claudius Lysias, to bring Paul back before you. But on his way, we're going to jump the caravan, and one of us is going to off Paul. If the rest of us die, so be it. But we're getting rid of this guy because he is disrupting the apple cart in our religious power structures, and, and we got to be done with this. The word of that, Paul's nephew hears this, and Paul's nephew comes and tells Paul, ends up telling the, the Roman official, and in the middle of the night, they put Paul on a horse, they put 270 soldiers, I'm sorry, 470 soldiers around him, and they get him out of Jerusalem in the middle of the night, and he goes to uh, this, like they take him to Caesarea, which is on the coast. It is a Roman city in Judea, in the Middle East, in, in what we would call Israel, uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It is a city that was built up by Herod the Great, uh, who's the guy who killed all the babies in the book of Matthew with the Christmas story. But it has become kind of the capital of the Roman government in the Middle East. And so uh, there's this big palace, this, this, this government center, walls, it's fortified. They get Paul there. And five days later, this is where our story shows up today, five days later, the Jews show up. Now, you got to understand that, they are, that that is showing that they are serious. 
Because it's, it's like, if you really go crazy on horses, you might be able to get there in a day or two. But if you're hiking, it's about a 60-mile journey from Jerusalem to Caesarea. They get there in five days. They, they are making, making way. They get there, and now this, this trial, this situation happens before the Roman governor, Felix. Okay? Now, uh, he is not a cat. And uh, Felix is a name that being translated means happy. He is not. He does not live up to his name. In fact, this guy is an awful, brutal, violent ruler in Israel. His record is terrible. The way he deals with any uprising is to send Roman soldiers and kill innocent and guilty people. He doesn't care. He's got a record of this. That includes maybe a year to two years before this moment, he actually put a hit out on the Jewish high priest, a guy named Jonathan, who was killed in Jerusalem because this guy said, take him out. He's too much of a troublemaker. He's, he's not a good guy. Not a good guy. He, he gets married three times. Just when he's tired with a wife, gets rid of her. He's married to this woman that's mentioned in the text. And, and <clears throat> there are actually a couple records that say that she would be the equivalent of like the highest end model. She was apparently just Beautiful, beautiful. Teenage girl, this is much older. At 16, she had married a king of a neighboring nation, but he went in and wooed her and then kind of pushed the king away with the Roman Empire if he wouldn't give in. She divorced his wife and became his wife at age 18, and now he's got this third wife that is like, you know, great eye candy. But again, not, not a good guy. And, and now, Paul is in Caesarea before this governor. He kind of represents Rome to the whole Middle East. He's the highest-ranking official of the Roman Empire in Israel and anywhere in the area. The Roman armies have to do what he says. Roman officials, they are following him. He represents the Roman Empire here. Meanwhile, the Jewish religious authorities show up with, with the high priest. So they send the most important spiritual leader in all of Israel with a few of the elders, a few of the other leaders, and now they have this Roman guy who is going to represent them, or, or I'm sorry, I, I said something that isn't, a guy with a Roman name, his name is Tertullus. We know nothing else of, about him except this moment. He has a Roman name. And so either he is a Roman who is representing the Jews in front of, like he is, re, he is their, their, the prosecutor. He is representing the Jewish people, you know, the people versus Paul's, what's going on. And this is guy who's the attorney for the people. He is going to present the argument. So either he is a Roman or he's a Jewish person who, because he had become accustomed to Roman law and actually was doing this sort of thing, he had taken a Roman name. Either way, he is now going to stand before and he is going to make the prosecution in front of this, this guy, Felix, uh, and he is going to, to, in this prosecution, going to lay out the charges that the Jewish people have against Paul. But if we read it, we pay careful attention, what we see is that there is a pattern behavior of these people of outright lies, of injustice, of just being awful as they approach their cases. This, this trend goes all the way back to the life and trial of Jesus. These, 
The Sanhedrin 30 years ago held a completely illegal trial by the Old Testament law. So their whole point is, we must live by the law. We must follow God. Everybody needs to live by the morals of the law. But when it was time for them to uphold the Jewish law, the Old Testament Torah, the the books written by Moses, when it came to their jurisprudence, to the way they held a trial, they ignored all of it, held a completely illegal trial to convict Jesus and get him crucified. And this is happening again. And now they have this guy who's standing in front of them. And look, just grab your Bible again. If you don't have one, uh, there are baskets with Bibles. Uh, We're in chapter 24. Look down at verse 2 and hear the opening, thinking now of what I just told you about this cat named Felix. That was a pun, by the way. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since though we enjoy much peace... And since by your foresight, Felix, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made to this nation, and in every way and in everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, do you see the pile of manure that this guy is just shoveling out? They don't appreciate the peace. They don't like him. The reforms are reforms of, of violence and murder, yet... He's going to butter him up so that he can get his way. And then he makes his case, verse 5, For we have found this man to be a plague, uh, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world, and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. And by examining, examining him, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. Now, what happens here is that um, this this prosecutor makes three basic charges against Paul. They're charges that have shown up in the story several times. First of all, he's, he's uh, charged with causing riots. Paul is the one who's instigating all these riots. Now, here's how Paul is causing riots. A group of people beat him up and it's his fault. That, that's every riot in the book of Acts. Paul's just preaching Jesus, being faithful to the gospel, sharing Christ, and a group of people who get sideways, who despise his message, who don't like him preaching Christ, who don't like the story of the resurrection, who don't like the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, turn on him, beat him up, and then what the Jews do is they stand up and say, see, there's a riot. He caused it. It's his fault. Right? That doesn't seem right, but that's what he says. Second, he says that he is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, uh, there is actually a a reference to this in the, the Gospels where one of the other disciples is looking at, you know, the idea of Jesus being the Messiah, and they're like, hey, does anything good come out of Nazareth? It's kind of like, you know, uh, looking at Paul, or looking at Jesus and, and putting a label on it saying, man, he's the ringleader of, you know, the, 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 the redneck white trash people, or, you know, I mean, identifying a group of people and having this disdain and just saying, and he's the ringleader of a guy who came from those people. The Nazarenes. Like, this is not a, a sweet, endearing term. Now, what's happened in culture is that Pete, the Christians throughout the ages have embraced these, these terms that were derogatory of Christians as badges of honor. In fact, in the Middle East, uh, Christians will say that I am an in, meaning I am a member of the Nazarenes. I, I follow this guy 
who was despised and rejected by people. He is my savior as a way to look at like primarily the Muslim world and say, this is what we stand for. But here it is not a, you know, sect means a, a heresy. They, he's, he's with this, this group of this sideways that follow this horrible guy who's from nowhere and they're following him and he's kind of the ringleader. He's the big troublemaker who's kind of keeping it going. And the third charge that they make against him uh, here is that the Jews, uh, I'm sorry, is that he, he tried to profane the temple. He tried to profane the temple, which we know and we'll f- we find out further in this text is just an outright lie. He'd been accused of taking a Gentile into the temple, which was forbidden by the Jewish law of the time. Actually, not forbidden by the Torah, but forbidden by the Jewish law at the time. And the claim originally was that he took this guy that was a buddy of his into the temple, past the wall that said Gentiles had to stay out, and that he was trying to overrun the whole system. And it just wasn't true. Now, here's what I want you to see in this. Every one of these charges is rooted in things that are just blatantly untrue. There is no integrity among these people. We've seen it all the way through yet. And this is a a big theme. Like, as we preach and teach Acts, I I just want to pause and tell you that here's one of the major themes of the book of Acts, and that is the theme of Paul's innocence. All the way back to his missionary journeys, like in places like Philippi, in places like Thessalonica, in places like Ephesus, there are people who try to rush into places, create mobs against Paul, and try to get the government to do something with him, claiming that he has done something illegal. And what we keep seeing all the way through the story is that Paul, in his Christian faith, is a good, law-abiding citizen that people trump up charges and make up things, their integrity is nil. Meanwhile, when it comes to the the, the Roman laws, Paul is a Roman citizen. He honors the laws of Rome. He will preach Christ if it forces him to break the laws of Rome, so be it. But basically up to this point, his activity wasn't illegal in Roman law, and therefore he, he has been a good Roman citizen. But on the other side, his innocence is showing, Luke, the author, is showing us over and over again that he is a Jewish person and he, does, he, he maintains the essence of his Jewish faith. He never violates the law of the Jews. So you have, on one side of this equation, you have these people who are religious people who see the Bible is central to their whole belief system, who believe that it is about the moral righteousness of their nation, about staying true to their beliefs, who are willing, with, because they have an agenda, to push all of that aside and lie, to, to bring false witnesses, to bring false testimony against Paul, and to try to set up a, a case where they will hand Paul over and they will murder Paul illegally without a proper trial. And on the other side, you have this guy, Felix, who as a Roman is horrible. And what we find out in the text is that he tries to solicit a bribe from Paul. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he's, he's just morally corrupt down to the core. There's no integrity on either side of this. And in the middle of the story, there's the Apostle Paul, whose life has been changed by the beauty of the gospel. And we have a moment here in the story where his witness is on trial. It is not just the fact that he has been preaching Jesus. We have a man who believes in Jesus, and what we're going to ask the question is, does his life measure up to what's coming out of his mouth? 
He could stand before Felix and tell them, like, just unload on the Jews. He has every right to name call, to start a Twitter hashtag, right? Uh, to, to, you know, evil Jews. You know, I mean, he, he has the right to do all of this against his accusers. But he never does it. He has integrity in his witness. And, 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 and here's Paul between these two groups of people representing Christ. And he is guilty of the one thing he keeps saying. Here's why I'm on trial. Because I am a member of the way. There's another term that shows up. A member of the way. I like that one, by the way. Who are you? We are a member. We are part of the way. What way? Jesus is the only way. <laughs> I'm a member of the way. And I am telling people that Christ is risen. That's why I'm on trial. He keeps circling back saying, you're not going to find in my life me violating your law or your law. What you will find is that I'm going to preach Christ and I'm not stopping. But his life is on trial as much in this text as his witness as he does make another defense. And so, so he, he, he starts talking to him and his defense is, hey, listen, they got no evidence and the guys who made the initial claim, like if you read through this, he's saying the guys who made the initial claim that I brought a Gentile into the temple were Jews from Turkey, Jews from Asia who followed me here. Where are they? Why, why are, like, nobody here can give testimony that says this. Where are the people who made the initial charge against me? And the answer is they knew better than to bring them because they knew it was a lie. And Paul says, they have no evidence to get me yet, against me yet, when they found me, they found me being a good person, a good, good Jew, following the laws and obeying the systems and, and really wrestling with the, the beauty of the gospel as it transformed my life so that I lived with integrity before them. And so, so what happens in the text, there are these two phrases that show up, and I want you to see these. So if you don't have your Bible open, grab it and just check it out, okay? Where Paul says two things about his life and witness. And these are in verses uh, 16 and 18, but I'm going to show them to you opposite of where they are. So first of all, look at verse 18. It says, well, I was doing this. They found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, tumult but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make uh, an accusation should they have anything against me. Now, he, 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 there's where he says, hey, here's these Jews who made the initial charge. Where are they? They have something against me. Let them show up and say it. But here's what he says. He says, listen, I showed up to the temple and I had done everything necessary. He had gone through this whole purification rite to allow this man who had been overseas to come back to Jerusalem and step into the temple as religiously pure. Religiously right. He said, I did all these things. This is an external form of religion that is part of our walk. It is saying, man, we, we, we are walking with Jesus. We're honoring him with certain things that are visible, the way people see our lives. And he says, listen, when they saw me, I, I had done everything necessary by the law to be in that space and to be a religious person. They can't hold that against me. 
And I think in our faith, and a lot of times here in Christianity, our problem is that, that this is where it ends. What we want to do is we want to be seen as Christians. We want our, our lives to be um, you know, honored as religious people. We, we have a, a way of going about life so that the aura we give off, the way we has a little bit of pride sometimes, but in that pride, we are good church-going moral people. We don't break the rules. We don't live certain, we don't have certain values like people in the culture. We vote a certain way. We live a certain way. We act a certain way. Nobody else is like us. Therefore, we're like, we can hold this with a way of looking down our noses. And he uses this phrase to look at the Jewish people and say, this is all you got. Because you may show up in the temple holy, but your lives are not. And the way he says this is very beautiful and subtle, but it's in verse 16. Look at verse 16. He says, so I always take pains. Now, verse 15, let, let me back up. Having a hope in God, which these, these, these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, listen to what he's saying. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, here's what's happened in my life since I met Jesus. He's been transforming my life, and my hope is in the resurrection. These guys believe in the resurrection, but they don't see it in Jesus. But I am a follower of the way, and I have hoped in Christ, and he has so transformed my life that it's not just that I can say I am ceremonial, ceremonially pure, that I am represent, like in the way people see me on the outside, I live a holy life. He's saying, listen, Christ is so transforming that I'm working to keep a clear conscience. The word conscience here is exactly what we think of. It is literally a term that refers to my own inner thoughts and values being a prosecution or a witness against myself. This is not the external form of religion. This is not living my life so people see. He's saying, here's what happens, okay? He's saying, my, like, what's happened is, it, it, for me, I am learning to walk with Christ so that who I am on the inside, who I am in the way I think and see the world, who I am in my conscience is lined up with who God is, what the gospel is, and the way my external life looks. Yes, I'm holy on the outside when I go to the temple. I keep the rules of the Jews. But man, it's got to be more than that. We have to live our lives so that our conscience is being shaped by the gospel. Right? So I've been having a little bit of back pain. My, 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 I got a nerve issue, kind of runs down my leg, and it has not been fun. And I've never seen a chiropractor in my life. Okay? But I did a little, little you know, good internet research, like, like you know, most good people do, to say, what, what should I do? And with the pain I'm having, it was kind of, some will say go see a doctor, some go see a chiropractor. I chose, chiropractor's in town, I'm going to give it a try. So I go to this chiropractor, and they've been helping, they're getting some exercise, some physical therapy that helps me, and, and, and it's slowly improving. But he's also, you know, doing adjustments and all this sort of stuff. And I've, I've got this guy, he's a great guy, find out he's a believer, he goes to church, uh, another church that's kind of in our general area. Uh, he's kind of a small, former baseball player, college baseball player, we've had some great conversations about sports, stuff like that. Um, but he's all, you know, he's trying to crack my back. And one of the things that he does, and, and you know, I'm not, I'm not small. And then most of you have all have not picked up on that, but um, getting, like hugging me and getting arms around me can be a challenge for people, you know? And so he has me do this thing where I, I lean on the table and I get on my side over on one side. And he wraps one arm around me this way 
And the other arm, he gets underneath my back, and then he kind of rolls me over where his hand is underneath, my, like the small of my back. And then with his shoulder and everything that this 135-pound guy has in him, he pushes down on me, right? And the first two times I went, my back cracked, and I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't had somebody actually do that in years. That feels kind of good. But I was there on the Thursday this week, and, and, and so all of a sudden he pushes down, and my back went, but so did my rear end. Now, now, I have, in your community group this week, here's your challenge. You have to share the most embarrassing thing that happened to you this week. And I was like, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. And he did it again, and I farted again. But the second time I said nothing, I just walked out of the room, straight-faced, walked into the lobby, and just started laughing uncontrollably. But here's the truth, okay? Here's the truth. You're like, why are you telling us this story? When you are squeezed, what's on the inside of you will come out. Right? When you are squeezed. The conscience is talking about who I am in here. And Paul's saying, the gospel has so shaped me so that I'm figuring out what it looks like to live right. Now, he's not talking about sinless perfection. He's not talking about the fact he's got this past failures in his life before he met Jesus where he killed Christians. He's not saying, listen, I'm perfect and I never sin. What he's saying is there is an integrity to my life that shows up. And what happens in the text, that Luke is brilliant in the way he writes, because what happens in the text is he's telling the story, is we have this integrity tested right in front of our face. Because what happens is Felix hears the trial. He doesn't hear anything that the Jews present that are worthy of Paul being even arrested, much less handed back over to them. So what Felix does is he tells, he, li- he just outright lies to the Jews. All right, here's the deal. This guy, this tribune that's in Jerusalem, uh, his name is Claudius Lysias. When he shows up, I'll rule on this. I'll, I'll hear from him, and when he shows up, I'll rule. He already had a letter from this guy. Last week, we saw this. He had a letter from Claudius Lysias that said, hey, dude, Paul's innocent. They want to kill him. I don't know what to do with him. I'm sending him to you. Like, the letter that he has is uber clear of Paul's innocence, this theme that keeps showing up. So he doesn't need to hear Lysias' testimony, but he uses this as a way to push them off, and he sends them out and says, I will rule later. There is no evidence anywhere in the Bible or outside of the Bible that Claudius Lysias ever showed up. He just lied to him. But he gets them out of his hair. He then puts Paul back in prison, but he says, I'm going to make it a good, good stay. He keeps him in this, this, um, this building, this complex. He's in chains, so he can't, he's not free to go. But he's eaten well. He's treated well. He can have all the friends he wants to come see him. But then he and his wife call Paul to come talk to him. And the text tells us that Paul told them about his faith in Jesus, which is beautiful. But he also told them about, look at it, Paul's witness. He looks at this man who is this cat, who is this troublemaker, who has no integrity in his life. Verse 25, any reason about righteousness Self-control in the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed. Here's what he's saying. In his witness, Paul could have chosen themes that made Felix look at him and go, man, I just want to hear more. And Paul looked right at him and said, bro, your life 
has left you in the crosshairs with God, and your only hope is Jesus. And Felix's alarm sends him away. But it says he kept bringing him back. He's curious. And Paul has this open opportunity to witness and to testify in front of the highest-ranking Roman official. But as the story goes on, you get to the end of the story. Here's, here's the problem. In order to appease the Jews, he leaves Paul in prison for two more years. But part of the reason is because we're told in the story that he looked at Paul and said, hey, man, I know you got friends. I know you got money. Pass me a few bucks. Just bribe me. And, and it was bribery in the Roman Empire was one of these crazy things that on one level, on one level, it was looked down on. But on another level, it was just Roman officials did it all over the place, including emperors. Now, it's into this. Hear me. I, I, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit because... We're talking about this idea of conscience. Feeling good about myself is not a clear conscience. In fact, the Bible tells us that you can have a guilty conscience. And that guilty conscience we need to deal with, with sometimes that is because of conviction. And, and sometimes that is because we have not authentically repented. But if, if you have a guilty con conscience over things that happened in the past and you have let the blood of Christ deal with that, you need to Lift that, even your conscience up to Christ. Listen, Paul was a murderer, yet he had a clear conscience because the gospel transformed it. And so we end up with, with having a guilty conscience. You can have a seared and defiled conscience. First Timothy 4, 1 and 2 says the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons and through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Listen, part of what I've seen even in Christianity recently are people who the sin around them ought to be crushing them and having them run to Jesus. And they've so seared their consciences that somehow they're finding ways to justify nonsense that is not justifiable. And the watching world sees this and just goes, if that's what Jesus does, I don't want it. I don't want any part of this. But what we see in Paul is somebody who has a gospel conscience, who's found forgiveness and now is living in integrity so that when he squeezed, what comes out of him is holiness, is, is rightness, is, is living with integrity. And so in verse 24, we're told that Felix is looking for a bribe. Would you do it? You're in prison. You feel like you have this mission where God has called you. He has called you to go to the nations. And you have this moment. Man, let me tell you some reasons why Paul should have done this. I'm just going to tell you. Paul should have, have just found a few friends, got some people. There were people out there with money that would have written checks and come in with some money and had it. And we could have got... We could have got Felix enough money to just let Paul put him on a boat. The Jews would have never had to know. He's gone. He's off to Rome preaching Jesus. Why should, why should Paul have done this? Well, he should have done this because it was accepted practice. Listen, everybody's doing it. It is part of Roman culture. Even though it was frowned on, it was normal. We found out earlier that the guy got his Roman citizenship because he paid a bribe. This is just the way the world works. Don't you know that? Listen, he should have done this because he could preach Jesus around the world again. He could hop in a boat and he'd go anywhere he wanted to and preach Christ. He would be a free man to preach. The mission could go on, right? He, he should do this because another miracle story. 
Like Luke could have written this in as again, God opened the doors and set Paul free. It's a miracle. Look at the glory of God. He could have proclaimed this in the story. He, he should have done this because this has to be God's moment, right? Like God has to have opened the doors. No other explanation. Like God's plan here is to give Paul a way to get out of prison. How easy it is for us to come up with rationales for lacking integrity at work, lacking integrity in our relationships, lacking integrity in the way we see the world. But there's one reason why Paul can't do this, and that is because his life is about the glory and fame of Jesus. It, it is his desire for not just his lips, but his life to be a visible display of who Jesus is. Now, Here's where I just want to love us as a church. I'm not saying us in here. But I'm telling you, the world looks at us when we talk about Jesus and they see Warden Norton because so much of what is the church is living in a way where they would just pay the bribe, justify it. They would see in some agenda a rationale behind it and they would move on. But the fact that Paul doesn't is going to leave him in a position where he is sharing Christ with Felix. Felix, because he's awful, is going to get replaced by Nero. It's referenced in the text. Now watch this. History tells us that Nero replaced Felix because Nero looked at Felix and said, that guy is awful. He is way too violent. And if you know anything about Nero, he's like one of the worst people in history, and he's like, yeah, I'm not even that bad. And Paul is sharing the gospel with this super, he is going to have the opportunity to share Christ with the next Roman governor, Festus, who grew up about 70 miles south of here, down the street from Scott Pacino, I think. That's a Festus joke. If you don't know Scott, he's from there. Anyway, there you go. Uh, he is then going to preach Christ in front of Herod, the king of all the Middle East, and then he is going to end up in Rome and preach Christ in front of the Roman emperor. And if he pays the bribe, he does none of that. And I am here to tell you, I don't think we are reading about Paul in Scripture at all. His life mirrored the gospel he preached and it put him in a position where people could reject the gospel but they couldn't throw Jesus out because they looked at Paul's life and said this is what Christianity is all about I don't want anything to do with it they saw in the integrity of Paul and I'm just telling you that we need a revival of this in our, our Christianity we just need a revival of this in the church if you're a follower of Jesus you need to wrestle with this deeply what does it look like to so gospel the inner person that you're being transformed so that who you are on the inside is beautiful and when you are squeezed praise and worship and trust in Jesus is what keeps coming out right and so listen there's some areas I just I, I see it in our culture where the church needs to heed this um, and I'm going to hit these real quick as the band comes up and we're going to sing to Jesus because this is not about self-reform. This is not about bug it up and have discipline. It is about being so enthralled and in love with Jesus. It is about like finding the song we just sang, love the Lord your God with all your heart, like so in love with Jesus that that love is transforming not just our 
outer display, not just how we act in culture, but it is so changing us that I can say, listen, I am really doing all I can to live with a clear conscience that, 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 that if, if you bring my conscience to testify against me, my conscience, what, what will, do I sin? Yes. But for the most part, my conscience will literally declare this dude loves Jesus and it's not just the show, right? This woman loves Jesus. Let me tell you some areas that even I struggle with, but I think are real for the church right now. I think we need integrity in the way we do our financial dealings and the idea of greed. We as a church have often baptized the American dream and said, God wants us rich. And we may not believe the health and wealth gospel, but down deep inside, we believe that that is the most important thing. And we will cut corners and do certain things and baptize it and say, this, is, this was Jesus' will as we actually are, are just living just like the world. And we can say, listen, everybody in my business does this. Everybody doesn't do their tax. Like they, they're, we cheat on taxes just the American way. And, and, and we need a revival in this. We need a revival of integrity in our sexual lives. Just telling you, you read the metrics. And the church's beliefs may be over here and what we believe is right, but our practice, our practice does not live up to that. And we are quick to condemn people in, who, who use certain letters. And don't, don't mishear me. I believe the biblical sexual ethic, but we are quick to condemn while at the same time finding ways to like support people who have been involved in other sexual sin. It happened in our, like the tribe that our church is part of this week where we put a man who is now a known sexual abuser in churches in our denomination, put him back on the stage to preach again. It's nonsense. And if we want credibility in our culture, that kind of stuff has to stop. We, we need to, to, to work on, and this is one area where I've been trying to do better in our online presence, our, our social media presence, our anger and vitriol and the way we treat people online does not represent, there is no integrity there and it does not represent Christ well. We just need a, a revival in this and wrestle if this is an area of repentance for you. We need to, to have a revival in integrity as it comes to loving our neighbor and standing with the broken and, and marginalized. I, I want to tell you the last 24 hours I've been smiling but on the inside I, I want to cry. If you haven't heard about it, you will. Our city is in the middle of the epicenter of the race question again because some high school students thought it would be funny to put on a bathroom stall for coloreds and for whites. And it's front page of the post today with a picture of Eureka High School football field as the picture. And our silence over the years to stand with people who were wounded by this and to hear them is awful. And it's part of the reason the culture looks at us and goes, if this is what Christianity is, listen, I don't know who the kids are. I hope they're not part of our church. But I'm up here to prophetically tell you that is nonsense. And we as Christians need to stand against anything that would look at somebody made in the image of God and belittle them, try to shame them, try to degrade them. And we need to feel the weight. I literally had a, a, a conversation this morning with a mom uh, that I know in our, our community who had a conversation with a woman who has a child who is mixed race and talked about how they together have been curled up in a ball since this happened, just crying and trying to decide if they can stay in Eureka. And our witness needs to be clear. 
needs to be clear on this. We need integrity here to love our neighbor well. And we need integrity in the case of authority and leadership because in the church, that's just a big problem where you lead, lead like Jesus. And I'll just leave it at that. But here's the point. That public witness that flows out of who we are on the inside is part of the way that Christ is made known. We were at this event last night, and I loved it. I loved our, seeing our people serve our city last night with this Blevins Trivia Night. And several, a couple hundred people in this room doing trivia. Our people were serving. A lot of you were there. But I, I just got kind of overwhelmed, and I shared with the group a little bit about this at the weight of lostness in that room. The number of good, moral, Eureka people. I love Eureka. I love Eureka. I want the city to be a better version of itself, but more than that, I want people in the city to know Jesus. And, and for a lot of people, your neighbors and the people in that room, the only thing standing between them and this resurrection of the unjust, this coming judgment of God that Paul references is our witness in the way we live our lives before them. That's it. We need to hear that in courageous conviction looks like believers who are allowing their lives so deeply transformed by the gospel that we do better and we live different. Lord, we praise you for Paul, man. What a, what a great testimony. I, I stand up here and, and preach this I wish I could say I always was this and always am this, but help me, Lord, to be transformed by Jesus so much, love, love you so deeply that when I'm squeezed, that's what comes out. And I just pray, Lord, for us as a church that the gospel will shape our lives so that we will represent you well while we, pro we proclaim you clearly in our city. And where there is need for repentance, let us find forgiveness this morning. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In your name I pray, amen.